This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show coming to you from Washington, D.C., Got a busy show today, folks. The Hunt for Anon September, which is what I'm calling that editorial writer, the anonymous editorial writer in the White House, the Deep State Manifesto, another thing that I've come up with for it. Uh, Trump is expected to declassify, some reporting on that, declassifying the FISA memo that was used, well, the FISA memos in general that were used for surveillance of Carter Page. Uh, Also, Joseph Mifsud, the professor that Papadopoulos interacted with, he may be dead. Obama is back. Jim Carrey says we have to say yes to socialism. And Serena Williams freaks out. And then the social justice left comes to her aid. Let's get right to it with the, the latest on the, the hunt for anonymous September. The hunt for a non-September. I, I have to say, I was originally of the mindset that they would find out who this was. It was it was originally my in my thought process, I figured that this was a situation where they would definitely out the person. It's just a question of when now I'm thinking, actually, maybe not, because the power of this editorialist comes from the anonymity in a sense. Right. The media likes this because it creates this gray area, this gray space for all of the anti-Trumpers out there to come up with a different reason for, hey, you know what? Maybe this is John Kelly. Hey, maybe it's some other really important person in the White House. If we were to find out that this wasn't a particularly important person, then we would all be in a position where we've got to take a long, hard look at the editorial guidelines of the New York Times, which is just a resistance rag. I mean, I don't think we really have to be all that cautious about saying that, right? I mean, the New York Times is very honestly a place that is opposed to the president of the United States. Um, I mean, honestly, from my perspective, right? They're not honest about it. That's the problem. The problem is they still lie. But, you know, you had over the weekend, uh, Kellyanne Conway and others going on the Sunday shows, and they were taking the perspective on this, you know, the, the various administration surrogates taking the perspective well, of course, the person's cowardly and that this is so terrible and the media shouldn't be focused on this at all. What I would add to all of this is that it doesn't it doesn't change anything. Uh, the only thing you have here is somebody running around the White House who has delusions of grandeur. It doesn't change the perceptions from the Trump side or the anti-Trump side of what's really going on in the White House. It doesn't tell us anything particularly new. What it does do is open up endless rounds of speculation from the media about just exactly what has happened here and uh, you know how powerful this person may be, how close his or her relationship with Trump may be. So I, but I think that the media doesn't really want to find out, and that's the big shift in my thinking on this. That's why I'm saying it's the hunt for a non-September. Uh, I don't think that they really are going to going to scratch at this at all. I think they're just going to let it be. Uh, we know that the New York Times obviously knows a number of people there know. Uh, now, they would say they would protect this person, interestingly enough, as a source, I guess, but they're not really, it's not really a source. It's an editorial writer. It's a little different. It feels a little different, at least. And remember, all of these rules, folks, are guidelines. They're not hard and fast uh, truths. So you have uh, you have that happening right now. I, I don't think that they're going to find the person. And I think the media is complicit in continuing to to hide the football on that one. And, and then you have another series of stories that all tie in together all around the Russia collusion fantasy. You have for one, Trump is expected soon, according to Axios here and, and, and other places, Trump may uh, declassify. Trump may decide to declassify the entirety of the uh, Russia probe FISA documents. Now, we've seen some of the FISA documents with extensive redactions. 
What we've seen so far proves that, yes, the dossier was, in fact, a very important part of all this and uh, that the members of the Congress and, and the media who were claiming that the dossier was essentially just thrown in there as like, you know, why not, uh, that they're lying, that that was not true. Now, they're only saving grace up to this point. The only thing that prevents it from being completely irrefutable that the document was a opposition hit piece, essentially, being passed around the FBI, is that they must have additional sourcing, real good, deep level sourcing on this one. And I just don't see that being possible. Uh, or I shouldn't say possible. I, don't, I see that being very unlikely. I don't think that's going to be the case at all. And they are going to try and do everything in their power to hide this under national under the guise of national security. They're going to say, well, we can't for national security reasons, we cannot allow this information to get out there. Meanwhile, what about the balancing of the presidency with the national security concerns here? What about the fact that in this instance, you're talking about a Pfizer request that has been used as the basis for an investigation, essentially, or Pfizer, not just requests, but Pfizer program, Pfizer surveillance, to box in a presidential administration, really to try and continue a silent coup, uh, which is what I think we should all recognize this whole ridiculous uh, collusion investigation has turned into, an, an effort at a silent coup. That, that That's what this is. That's why the people who have been pushing it all along, you'll notice that they get frustrated that it's not more successful, but they're not worried. Even if they find out at the end of the day, at the end of the investigation, that everything they've been saying is wrong, it served much of the original purpose, which was to hurt Trump. That's why they were doing this. That's why they pushed so hard for it in the early days. If you really look at the whole Russia collusion investigation, you see that it was completely unnecessary based on DOJ guidelines. The Department of Justice could have done all the Russia interference aspects of the investigation. The only way you had a conflict of interest that necessitated some kind of special counsel uh, situation comes specifically from the notion that the Trump administration was a part of the problem or that the Trump campaign was a part of the problem. That's the only reason you have a special counsel. And then when you add into it the uh, the Comey firing, which you realize is that this has just been all a manufactured narrative from the left from the very beginning. That's what's that's what's been going on here. And, and that's in the at the end of the day, that's what we're going to see happened. That's why I agree with many other voices out there right now who are saying you got to release all the information, just declassify it. Enough is enough. And that way we can finally make the we can finally come to the conclusions about what really happened here. I would just note that one of the problems that you're going to come up with is that even if as crazy as this sounds, even if they declassify more of this and you're able to see it, even if Trump releases those FISA docs, they're going to say, oh, well, OK, the dossier might maybe was a bigger part of this process than we initially thought. But the dossier still could be true. We're all, we're going to be swept up in a could be, would be, could be true situation very quickly. We're going to move away from the realm of facts and logic and reason and into the depths of Trump derangement syndrome. That's what's going to happen here. Uh, speaking of Trump derangement syndrome, you know, you'd think that in an era when what they call uh, uh, slut shaming, for example, which is a, a term used by feminists on the left to talk about any time a woman is being uh, demeaned for being too overt in her sexuality or for her sex life. Uh, you'd think that federal prosecutors would be a little bit more circumspect about such things, right, given the possible public outcry. But Maria Butina, who is being held without bail, I would like to note. So she's being held as though she were a Yes, I know it's because she's a flight risk, but they're, they're holding her because they say that, uh, you know, she could leave the country. Meanwhile, usually when you can't have bail, it's because you either violated the terms of your bail or you're a risk to the public or a, a really serious flight risk uh, for a really serious crime. 
In this case, her crimes are not registering as a foreign agent. Not particularly serious stuff, folks. Generally, you pay a fine for that one. It's already been handed off, so it's not the Mueller probe that's handling Maria Butina. But prosecutors, you may recall, put out the story. They put out the story that Russian national Maria Butina was exchanging sex or at least offered to exchange sex for access as part of her political machinations, right? As part of her Russian agent operations, she was a honeypot, essentially. She, she was offering up sex to people uh, who she thought could get her access to important Republican American decision makers. And you'd think that they would only go out with that kind of character destroying information if it were really, really true. Turns out the prosecutors now, folks, I'm not making this up. Turns out the prosecutors have said, whoopsie, uh, looks like we were wrong about that one. We misinterpreted a text message chain and she really wasn't offering up sex to anybody. She, she really wasn't doing that. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I, I gotta say, so, so we've established that now. Uh, that's not a little whoopsie. Y- you'd think that this is something prosecutors would be a little, little slower in their rush to judgment about, at least to publicize it. It's one thing to have it and, and hold it and release it during trial. They made that part of the storyline when she got arrested. And I think it's really interesting that there's no outcry from the left about this at all, uh, that attacking this woman. Look, it's one thing to say that she was doing Russian agent of influence operations in the U.S. That's bad, and we don't want that, although how bad really depends on what she was doing. Uh, But it's an entirely another thing. It's a very different kind of crime to say that she was sleeping with people as part of that process. Uh, and that prosecutors r- essentially slandered her in this way and have admitted it just goes to show you that there are no rules, folks. And this is important for you to recognize. There are no rules when it comes to dealing with anybody associated with Trump or Russia collusion with Trump. As long as you are hitting them and hitting them hard, as long as you're hurting them with whatever you do, then it's all fine. There will be no apology, I think, and the media will not focus on this. They will not turn Maria Boutina into some kind of heroine. Um, but we should at least take a moment and see the prosecutors are overzealous and they are unfair when it comes to prosecuting people around Trump that have anything to do with Russia. Joseph Mifsud, the professor who is tied to George Papadopoulos, is feared dead. Uh, this is this is bizarre, folks. I mean, this comes out here. This is from Fox News. Joseph Mifsud, the mysterious Maltese professor believed to have played a key role in igniting the Russia probe, vanished from public eye after his name began surfacing in news stories. Now, lawyers for the Democratic National Committee say it is possible Mifsud is dead. In a filing in the Southern District of New York, the DNC said Mifsud is missing and may be deceased. The lawyers said that they will monitor news sources for any indications of Mifsud's whereabouts and will attempt service on Mifsud if and when he is found alive. The filing came as the DNC is suing Mifsud and others as part of its lawsuit accusing Trump of conspiring with Russia in the 2016 election. I mean, what a you want to talk about a frivolous lawsuit. This is this lawsuit is garbage absolute garbage. Um, but now as we as we look at this and, and try to get a sense of what exactly the law, what exactly comes into play here, other than the fact that the DNC is being litigious, I mean, am I, am I supposed to think that it's totally normal that this guy who is at the very center of all this, remember Mifsud is the one who talked to Papadopoulos in London. He's the one who uh, it is believed was perhaps run by a U.S. either law enforcement or intelligence service to get information from Papadopoulos. If he just turns up randomly dead, or, or rather in this case, just disappears, are we supposed to think that that's entirely coincidence? We're supposed to believe that this is just a thing that happened and that there's nothing that we need to see, there's nothing that we should be concerned about, you know, it's a coincidence. It's one 
giant, incredible coincidence. I have to say, I find that very hard to believe. I find it very hard to believe that this just happened and there's, and, and there's, there's no reason to think of anything else. Uh, just like I found it difficult to believe that the uh, op-ed that came out, the anonymous op-ed and its timing with the Bob Woodward book was not the result of what's obviously media collusion. And the media is colluding together against Trump. I don't think there's really any serious debate about that. I think that that's been on display for a long time. But, but the timing of these things happens and we're supposed to believe, yeah, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. You know, this, this stuff just sort of happens. We need to just deal with the reality of unforeseen events that, that, that occur at these incredibly inopportune times for Trump. But if you, if you despise Trump, all of a sudden the timing is amazing and you seem quite, it seems quite lucky. You know, Woodward is out there saying that people better wake up to what's going on. Uh, I've got to say, I, I I don't know what Woodward thinks is really all that different in his book. We, we've read so much of this already. We, we've heard this. We've seen this. We are very much aware. Uh, and yet Woodward is holding himself up yet again as the hero in this narrative, in literally his narrative, of course, right, or by constructing this narrative of telling us, that Trump is incredibly um, incompetent. And, you know, we've heard all this before, though. There's nothing really all that new in this information. I asked Omarosa last week. She said Trump is crazy. I said, tell me how. Tell me why. She said, well, I can't give you any specifics on anything. I can't actually bring you up to speed on why Trump is crazy other than to make the allegation, the accusation. I'm starting to feel like, folks, if a crazy president can be this successful, maybe we need a crazy president. Maybe we're in a different kind of world than we think we were, where not everyone has to pretend to be a character in the West Wing with pithy comebacks and always talking about, you know, freedom and democracy and, and, and America and values and all that stuff. I mean, you want somebody who believes in that, but you want them to protect those things, to propagate those things. You don't want them to just sit around and make a show of it. That's why I just don't think the Woodward book has the punch that he obviously wants it to. When you look at it more closely, it's, I mean, now keep in mind, I've only seen excerpts of it. I know people say, what do you mean when you look at it? I have not, I have not been deigned so important and, uh, and so fantastic as to be given a copy of the Woodward book up front. But I have to say, when you look at this thing, you find that uh, or the whole narrative around it too, it's clear to me that this is just a repetition of what's already been out there, consolidated under one byline, uh, Woodward, and right after the hunt for a non-September had to start, these things all coincide, folks. They all come together. And when you add into that that Mifsud is now dropping off the radar, perhaps forever, right when this probe should end, I've got questions, big ones. Let's turn to the world of sports for a minute, shall we? Social justice, once again, the order of the day, apparently. We'll get into that. Here's how it all started. This is Serena Williams right after losing in the U.S. Open women's tennis final. We can never really go back, Serena, but if you could change one thing about what occurred, uh, what would that be? Um... I don't know. I don't, you definitely can't go back in time, but I can't sit here and say I wouldn't say he's a thief because I thought he took a game from me. But I've seen other men call other umpires several things. And I'm here fighting for women's rights and for women's equality and for all kinds of stuff. And for me to say thief and for him to take a game, it made me feel like it was a sexist remark. I mean, like, how uh, he's never took a game from a man because they said thief. <laughs> for me, it blows my mind. But I'm going to continue to fight for women and to fight for us to have equal. Like, Courtney should be able to take her shirt off without getting a fine. Like, this is outrageous, you know? And I just feel like the fact that I have to go through this is just an example for the next person that has emotions and that want to express themselves and they want to be a strong woman and they're going to be allowed to do that because of today. Maybe it didn't work out for me, but it's going to work out for the next person. 
Wow, Serena Williams, women's rights hero, apparently. Let me just take a step back for a moment, folks, and we can describe exactly what happened here. And then you can come to your own conclusions about whether or not you think this was, as advertised, a, a case of standing up for women's rights and, and paving the pathway for the next young woman who comes along so that she doesn't have to deal with this degree of, of sexism. Uh, Serena Williams in the U.S. Open final against uh, a woman by the last name of Osaka. I'm actually blanking temporarily on her first name. I'm looking it up right this second. Pardon me. That happens sometimes when you're on air. Um, Naomi. I was going to say Natalie. Naomi Osaka. So, look, I like tennis a lot. For those of you who don't know that, I'm a some somewhat of a tennis fan. Um, but I don't like that all sports now have been polluted by social justice. Uh, it's not just the NFL. And I would note, by the way, that this past weekend, with the NFL uh, kneeling that occurred, it's essentially no longer a problem, folks. I think you had two out of almost a thousand players take a knee, two Miami Dolphins players. So this is now irrelevant. This is not a big problem in the NFL. People are not doing it. And I don't even think the president should focused on it anymore because he's giving too much attention to one or two guys. Nobody really cares about what they're doing. Uh, but social justice ideology has penetrated far beyond any one particular sport. And in this case, in, in tennis, you have Serena Williams, who is obviously African-American female, uh, who is, in terms of wins and just in terms of raw ability, the greatest female tennis player of all time. Some people would put one or two other names in there. She's certainly in the top three of all time, if not number one far and away. So she's had a tremendous amount of success. She's worth probably well north of $100 million. I don't know what her net worth is, but she's, she's fabulously wealthy. She has a clothing line. She's an international superstar. Uh, but she also has had a few instances in the past where she has lost her cool. She's lost her temper uh, very obviously and, and markedly in the past. And this instance here, uh, this time we're talking about the over the weekend, the U.S. Open, she decided that, uh, well, she was getting coached, which is a violation. Her coach gave some hand signals. And I would note that while Serena said, oh, I wasn't getting coached, it doesn't matter whether she saw him or not. The coach was trying to give her coaching signals with his hands. Whether you should be allowed to do that or not is another discussion, but you're not allowed to do it in tennis. She got a warning for that. She then, after losing a point, and she was already losing to uh, Naomi Osaka pretty badly, and it's not reported enough that Osaka already beat her earlier this year. So it's not like Osaka can't go pound for pound, you know, stroke for stroke against Williams. She, she has, and she has won in the past. But Williams just took her racket and annihilated it. I mean, just shattered it on, on the court, which people will say, one, it, it is poor sportsmanship, but also that little plastic can fly up and, and actually, you know, strike somebody in the front row. I mean, you, you really don't want to set a precedent where you can just start breaking things on the court. So she got a point penalty. But Serena didn't stop there. Then she decided that she was going to make this an issue of, of her honor. And she started arguing vociferously with the chair umpire of this match. I understand why you may have thought I, that was coaching, but I'm telling you it's not. I don't cheat to win. I'd rather lose. I'm just letting you know. There's a coaching violation. I guess it was a thumbs up, and Serena's setting him straight. That, that is not coaching. I don't cheat to win. I'd rather lose, she says. Now, I think it's funny that that announcer says sets, sets the umpire straight. She was wrong. The coach later admitted that he was coaching, which is, again, not a huge deal. It happens. Coaches get a little animated. They're in the stands, and they really want their player to win. But she was wrong. He was trying to coach her, and she acted like he wasn't, and that she didn't or maybe was only slightly able to see what he was doing does not change the violation. This is straightforward stuff, folks. She broke the rules. She broke the rules, and then she couldn't accept that she broke the rules, and then she got really nasty with the umpire
accused of, of something. Yeah, it, Serena was watching her coach give her a hand signal. Now, I don't know if you caught that part at the very end, but she called the umpire a thief, which, as you can imagine, the umpire did not particularly like. That annoyed the umpire. And so the umpire, because it's a third... And, and there was sort of a back and forth. You can't really hear the umpire uh, speaking there. But she wouldn't stop. And she's really being belligerent with the chair umpire. Not allowed to do this. Tennis, like golf, is a game that still takes its decorum pretty seriously. And so she got a game penalty. And then later she lost. And it, the whole thing is just so... And by the way, folks, I know if you don't care about tennis, this isn't about tennis, okay? It's about the narrative around it, which I'm going to get to in just a second. But you need to know the full facts. Then Osaka goes up on stage, and she this should be the greatest moment of her career. She's won over $3 million, okay? So look, it is a good day no matter what, but she won over $3 million. She beat her idol, Serena Williams, she even said that, uh, on the number one stage, really, for at least American players in the world. For a lot of people say it's number one, although Wimbledon's up there too. And it was a, a disgusting scene. A lot of people were booing. Now, I know they were booing the USTA or they're booing the officials really, but to Osaka, she's up there and she's hearing booing from the crowd. It was just horrible. But what was amazing, folks, was how quickly all of these different sports announcers and the United States Tennis Association rallied around Serena. All of a sudden, Serena is a women's rights hero. How, how is she a women's rights hero? I'm seeing people sharing stuff from 30 years ago of John McEnroe acting like an idiot, which he used to do. And he used to get penalized, too, for that, by the way. Perhaps not enough. He should have been ejected from games. But she broke the rules. And yet here we are watching as she breaks the rules and then is applauded for being some kind of hero for women's rights and equality. I mean, the stuff that she was saying in there, uh, that it was a sexist remark, she called the umpire a thief. She's being disrespectful. You're not allowed to do that. Now, why do you have otherwise savvy sports watchers and announcers and commentators, at least savvy about their sport, why do they all rush to Serena's side? Well, folks, for a long time, there has been this narrative that because Serena is uh, black, there are double standards that are applied to her, as well as the fact that she is a female, which is the case here. Uh, for a long time, though, there have been people that talked about racism and the inherent racism of either a, you know, a, a bad refing situation or just how tennis was an elitist sport. Although, you know, t tennis now is a truly global sport. But you can just see that all these people see Serena Williams and they see her situation. And they think to themselves, female black sports icon not what really happened here and what's the circumstance. Because there's not, there's not two ways about this. But to announcers, they want to be politically correct. They want to be on the right side of this. And to the social justice left, they see this as an opportunity, as a, as a kind of Kaepernick-like moment, a rallying cry for women's equality. I, I don't know. It's such a stretch. It's really laughable. Uh, her thing about women, or a woman who took off her shirt, by the way, yes, there's a different set of rules for women than men. Women also have boobs and men don't. And I know that we're supposed to move past gender roles entirely in society, but we still think of boobs as things that, and maybe we shouldn't, folks. Maybe we should get past it. You know, I'm fine with boobs. But we, we think of them as something that we, you shouldn't see in the open. Although in New York, you can actually walk around topless. It's the law. You can walk around topless in downtown Manhattan. You won't get arrested. Uh, but it is the rule. And it's because you think of men and women differently because they are different. So a woman taking off her shirt, if she has a sports bra underneath, I'm fine with it, but the rules aren't there to penalize women unkindly. It's just because women have, you know, what are considered sex organs up top and men don't. Uh, and maybe maybe society's wrong with that, but it's not like tennis is some terrible uh, anti-women misogynist organization that's trying to penalize uh, ladies for, for having boobs. Um, and then just her whole thing about how she would, you know, it's about her daughter and she would never cheat. Let me tell you something about Serena Williams. In 2009 against another player called Kim Kleist, named Kim Kleisters, who's I believe Belgian, uh, she, or no, was it Kim Kleisters? Yes, it was. It was Kim Kleisters. Uh, she didn't like a foot fault call that she got and she walked over and this was on camera and everybody heard and saw this and she threatened a small uh, female 
Asian American line judge. She said she would uh, take an effing ball and uh, slam it down her effing throat. And now this is the the most iconic female tennis player in the world threatening a line judge because she didn't like a call. All right. I, I can't tell you any other prominent female tennis player or honestly any other prominent prominent female athlete who has done something quite as aggressive and egregious as that. But Serena has a victim complex, folks. She thinks of herself, even though she's a, just like Kaepernick, even though she's a globally recognizable uh, brand, and even though she's worth millions, she's a lot more famous, and a lot more successful as an athlete than Kaepernick ever was, but she's worth millions and millions of dollars. She thinks that she's treated unfairly and that her race and her gender hold her back and therefore justifies you know, she says there's a different standard and therefore she wants there to be a different standard under which we would judge her in actions and situations like this. That's what you see really happening. And, and the political correctness around it all is why you had all these announcers acting like idiots and coming to the defense of an athlete who is who is a bully sometimes. She's a bully. That's what happens. And she ruined Naomi Osaka's big moment. Uh, because she's not a big enough person to see past that. She was already getting her butt kicked in the game, by the way. She was uh, she was losing the match, no question about it. Uh, but now she wanted an asterisk next to it. She wanted there to be, a, you know, well, maybe I didn't really lose. And so she threw a tantrum, and that's what it was, a tantrum. I don't care what gender you are. I don't care what color you are. When you throw a tantrum in a situation like that and you break the rules, you should be held accountable. Because you see, I respect men and women equally, and I respect all races equally. So therefore, I apply the same logic and standards and code of conduct to everybody. I don't change it based upon the allegations that in other situations it has been changed against that person. That's, I'm not, I'm not going to try to rebalance the past based upon somebody's claims. Uh, so anyway, that's what I, I just, social justice now affects everything, and it affects even the way we talk about a tennis incident like this. Speaking of social justice, Jim Carrey is out there talking about how he wants socialism. But not when it comes to his money, I'm sure. But when it comes to yours, we'll get there. Stay with me. I've always said that the United States has been a quasi-socialist government for 100 years, for crying out loud. It's not well, a... It's not a plenty of subsidies for oil, oil companies. Well, and but also Medicare and Social Security. Out, and right? Yes, of course. There's nothing more socialistic than some of the Pentagon programs that right. are just jobs programs. The Pentagon says we don't want these tanks, and they build them anyway. If that's not socialism, I don't know what is. Yeah. But... But that word, the Democrats need to get a plan to fight this this slander of socialism. You're going to be living in Venezuela. I don't see it yet. We have to say yes to socialism, to the word and everything. We have to stop apologizing. I I am. That's right. We have to say yes to socialism, saith the hundred million dollar man, Jim Carrey. We have to say yes to the massive redistribution of wealth. But I don't know if that means that Jim Carrey has to give up his malibu mansion you know you have to wonder folks they're now saying this is the the bill maher line oh well we're basically already a socialist country okay well in that case what are these major changes that they say need to happen uh under this banner of socialism that's being trotted out by prominent democrats on a regular basis when they say oh well we don't we're not going to end up like venezuela or it's not fair to say we'll end up like venezuela okay well for us to end up like sweden which is the other thing that they talk about we are going to have to have tax rates in the area of say 50% for the middle class for you for me for people listening to this right now you're going to be given 50% of your income to the federal government that that sounds like a lot to me that sounds like more than the Democrats would be able to convince folks if they had to tell them what the numbers actually were. But I, I think we're all just getting sick of being lectured by incredibly wealthy people about how we all need to give more of our money away. You know, if Jim Carrey wants to give me a check for $10 million, then maybe I'll want to hear more about socialism from him. You know, if I get to sit in a position where I am economically immune from the bad decision-making of those who are pushing socialism, if I get to make that decision, that's, that's you know, that's fine as long as I get to live in my Malibu mansion, but I don't have a Malibu mansion. I got to live in the real world. 
And Jim Carrey and Bill Maher and the rest of them, they should have to live in the real world too. And that means if you want to say yes to socialism, it means saying yes to massively higher taxes and horrifically slow, if not negative, economic growth and all kinds of bad stuff. So, you know, you should at least be honest about what you want, folks. If, if they want socialism, well, then they should get it long and hard. That's my, that's my opinion on the matter, at least. When you hear how great the economy is doing right now, let's just remember uh, when this recovery started. Um, suddenly, Republicans are saying it's a miracle. I had to kind of remind them, actually, those job numbers are the same as they were in 2015 and 2016. And anyway... This is the best they can manage, folks. The Democrats, Obama, coming out there and saying, oh, well, the economy is great right now, but it's because of Obama. This is, is tough to take seriously. I don't take it seriously, especially because, just do this thought experiment. Imagine for a moment that unemployment was 6 7 8%. Imagine for a moment that the stock market had tanked 30% over the last, uh, at some point over the last year. Imagine that hiring had slowed dramatically. Would anybody say that Obama's massive sea of QE and quantitative easing and and the stimulus boondoggle and all the other stuff that was done was responsible? No, of course not. They would all say that Trump is a buffoon, he's an imbecile, and that's why the economy is bad. So by that standard that we all know is there, the economy is incredible. Uh, the economy is doing so very well, and not just on a general basis, but as compared to what we were told would happen if, in fact, Trump were president, right? It, it's good no matter who you are, but compared to the catastrophe they said would happen, uh, it's it's amazing. I mean, the economy, is, it's almost hard to believe how good it is. And I just noticed that this is where the, this is where the media, unfortunately, still gets to play such a prominent role. How many stories are there on how powerful uh, the tax cuts have been for the economy? How many stories are there on, even honestly, in the short term, more impactful, which is a word I know people don't like when you use that way, but I use it that way sometimes because everybody does. Uh, how much more profoundly important the anti-regulatory moves, the cutbacks and regulations have been for businesses in this country? Um, you won't hear those stories because the media doesn't want to tell you those stories. And as I've been saying, we don't have nearly enough of a focus on health care or a focus on what the Democrats really want when it comes to immigration. We're letting the Democrats control far too much of this narrative going into the midterms that it needs to stop. And that's why they've, they've brought Obama out because they think that he's the most powerful messenger that they have. Now, I, I would love it if... President Trump would uh, continue what he's doing, which is call out Obama. I mean, his line about Obama putting him to sleep with the speech is one of the best political lines I've heard in a long time because it's so true, because it's the reality of Obama's speeches. We we're all told they were so great and nobody was allowed to criticize. Nobody was allowed to say anything about him because that would have been mean. You would have even been racist, whatever. Uh, but Obama gives really boring speeches, in fact. I mean, the first two minutes, because he's, look, the guy sounds good. He's, you know, uh, got, an, uh, got a certain charisma, and I, I get all that. But his speeches go on and on, and, and his, his baseline for talking to the American people is really pretty close to a, a kind of condescension. It's always, you know, I'm, I'm amazing, let me solve all your problems, and, and the amount of uh, straw man burning he does on the other side is is pretty astonishing. Right? It's always the other side doesn't want babies to have food and old people to have health care. The other side, you know, that's not that's not what the other side wants. Who who told you that, Obama? Well, I've got the other side. They don't believe in food. They don't believe in medicine. They don't believe in shelter. I'm here to tell you, if you do what I want, you're gonna have all those things and more. And it's gonna be great. You know, I, I don't think that Obama was as, especially off, when you get him off the cuff, when you get him off of a script, it was never that impressive. 
And I think that I think that Trump could be his kryptonite the way that he was Hillary's as well. I think that Trump may be uh, able to destroy the aura of invincibility, political invincibility around, around Barack Obama. But but on the economy, folks, the fact that they're trying to say that it's the Obama economy just goes to show you they have no answers. They have nothing that they can say that makes it the economy not good. Uh, so that's why we, we might be able to defy recent political history here going to the midterms. I'm concerned about it. I think you should be concerned about it, too. Uh, but it, it is certainly possible. It is certainly possible for that for the first time in a long time, you will see in the first two years after a new president, a, uh, well, not a massive wave. I think that's certainly true. Um, economic confidence is really high, by the way. That's the, uh, that's the headline on the Wall Street Journal today. Economic, economic confidence is really, really high. Well, it's there. There's there's truth to that, my friends. Uh, it is, and there's a lot of hiring, and there's and and now we actually get in this place of, is it possible that this will keep going? Is it possible this will continue? There's almost a, a sense of of foreboding. I think that Trump's economic success thus far, it's impossible for it to continue. That there will be a natural corrective, and that corrective will open up the doorway for the Democrats to come rushing in and say, see, see, we told you, we told you, even though that wouldn't, if it were a short-term thing, if it were just, as I said, a correction and not a crash or or a depression, uh, that wouldn't prove that what Trump had done was not as beneficial as, as what we've been saying all along. Uh, but remember, Democrats have capitalized. Their, the biggest moments in Democrat political history in the 20th century and the 21st century, uh, several of them have revolved around an economic crisis that Democrats leveraged to push statist and, uh, and socialist policies to enlarge, to dramatically enlarge the government at the expense of individual rights and private property and the free market. And they've done it because when people are scared, they want someone to help them. They want someone to tell them it's all going to be okay. When you're retirement savings or your pension looks like it's going up in smoke and you might lose your house. Anyone who says we're going to make it all okay, you'll listen to. Truth is the Democrats don't make it all okay. They just spend a lot more of your money, kick the can down the road, make it a problem for future generations. And oh, by the way, they do all these other bad things to keep you in the meantime, feeling like things are improving when in reality, they're just writing checks that writing checks their bodies can't cash. I guess that kind of makes sense. I'm not even going to say that was a movie quote because you already know that. Please also welcome up to the stage the students from Parkland High School. David Hogg. I have a question for you guys. Who's ready to save America? So here we got uh, David Hogg and Michael Moore, two favorite pundits of uh, the the far left, the progressive left in this country. Uh, notice, you know, Hogg now has become a, at least in MSNBC circles, a household name. And and he just, the, the grandiose rhetoric flows from this kid. Uh, who's ready to save America? But, but he goes on. Who's ready to make America the country that we say it is on paper and make it the actual country that it wants to be? You know, this this goes over really well with the progressive left, you know, that, that, that America needs to be made a lot better, that it's not the place that we say it is, that there's a there's a fraudulence at the heart of this thing we call America. Meanwhile, by any objective measure, any normal person would say, wow, America, heck yeah, this place is amazing. And it is amazing. And in fact, a lot of ways right now, folks, it's better than it's ever been. It's certainly wealthier than it's ever been. It's safer than it's ever been. I know it's hard to believe, but it's true. It's true. People say, oh, Buck, what about back in the good old days of, you tell me when the good old days were, folks, and I'll say, you mean when there were like Nazi submarines off the coast of Long Island or uh, when the Japanese were bombing Pearl Harbor or, you know, what? When, when we were concerned about foreign countries invading us and they could actually beat us? Uh, what, what were the good old days when things were so much better here? I, I would just wonder when that was. I know that it's usually not a, 
uh, crowd pleaser to say things are awesome. People generally want to hear about catastrophe, but America's pretty awesome. Unless you're on the progressive left. But Hogg and Michael Moore continue. I think it's the, the most important thing to realize, however, is the problems that we face as a country. Whether it be water in Flint, Michigan, or the amount of mass incarceration of people in color, of color that can't vote. In Florida, the amount of eligible African Americans that would otherwise be eligible to vote that can't because of a previous conviction is 21%. In Kentucky, it's 26%. In Mississippi and Alabama, it's 15 to 16%. These are people of color that have been historically discriminated against and still are to this day and have their voting rights taken away. It's exactly. Turn that shame into your vote. If you're not Canadian. I can't help but notice that uh, Mr. Hogg, who is taking a year off before college to become a, an advocate uh, for left-wing causes. So now he's officially a pundit, folks. He's no longer a high school student that we can't discuss or debate. He's a public person. He's inserted himself into the public debate over policy. We are allowed to say that he is often uh, ignorant of the subject matter he discusses and quite honestly, doesn't have a particularly sophisticated view of a lot of things. Uh, and I'm being pretty kind. I know some of my conservative brethren and, and uh, sisters. What's the female of brethren? Sestren? I don't know. i got to think about what that is. Uh, but they're much harder on him than, than I have been, although I'm sure that will change over time because I have a feeling Hog, who used to be used as a weapon to try to get people deplatformed and fired, I have a feeling that he... Uh, will, in fact, be somebody who is a weapon for the left. You know, I had, just a, a brief aside here, I had on my show, uh, gosh, today on Rising, we had the Media Matters chairman, David Brock. I just have a really tough time with these people who, and by, you might want to watch the interview because I think I pretty, in, in completely, um, respectful is too, in polite a fashion, because I'm not respectful toward him. I don't respect what he does, but I'm polite because I'm in a place of business and I'm doing my job. But in polite fashion, I think I dismantled his foolish argument about Kavanaugh. I don't like these people that try to get people fired. I don't like this new trend among the, uh, the, the left wing to do everything in their power to try and get people to be, you know, kicked off of whatever their platform is to, to make sure that they, they can't make a living. Uh, which which I think is really what it's all about for them. I think Hogg fits into that category. I think he's one of these people that is also trying to find ways to eliminate people from the conversation, from the public conversation. But anyway, we'll, we'll have more time for Hogg later. Notice how, though, his focus of why America is not as great as it should be or is is not what it purports to be, he doesn't mention at all, for example, opioids. And I, I just find this really noteworthy. He goes right to mass incarceration. And and I'm not saying that there, there isn't some over-criminalization, but over-criminalization in the criminal justice system and mass incarceration are not the same thing. Mass incarceration just means we have a lot of people in prison. Well, what I want to know is, did they do bad things? And are they serving a sentence commensurate with the gravity of their crime. If the answer to those two things are both yes, I don't have a problem with it. What conservatives don't like is overcriminalization. It's, oh, well, you destroyed documents in a civil uh, in a civil probe for a, you know, a business that has a civil liability, but now you're going to fall under a Dodd-Frank guideline and you could face up to 20 years in federal prison. I mean, you know, I don't like when you wrap lobster that you catch off the coast of Honduras in plastic instead of paper, and therefore you face a year in federal prison. When we criminalize things that should not be criminal, that's a big problem for me. And when we send people to prison for far too long, that's a problem for me. And I think some of that happens with drugs. But overcriminalization is just something that the left talks about as a means of pandering to this social justice left that believes that the reason people are in prison is generally racism and structural racism. Well, I just want to know if somebody committed a crime, then they should be in prison. So are we talking about all these people being innocent or what does over rather what does mass incarceration really mean? We know what overcriminalization means, but he skips right over opioids. If you were going to have a rally and talk about the, the most urgent problem facing this country 
and you don't jump to the fact that 70,000 people a year, and this is a bipartisan problem, 70,000 people last year, I think it was 73,000 total, might, might have been up or down 1,000, died of drug overdoses from opioids. If you are not going to focus on that right away, I want to know why. I want to know why voting rights, oh, that's right, because the midterm's coming up. Why are voting rights for felons a more important issue if you're going to try to do great things and, and make America this awesome place that you say it's not already? Why aren't you going to deal with the fact that 70,000 plus people died of opioid overdoses last year? Where does that factor into all of this? And, and of course, with Hog, you have gun control as a constant. And I, I had to deal with Alyssa Milano recently say to me, that it's as easy to get a cappuccino as it is to get an AR-15, which, which is just wrong, but she said it. And I, I was taken aback because it seems like such a foolish, such a stupid thing to say. But now, I don't know if you've seen this, folks, the, the new initiative out there to try and find a way to uh, cut down on gun violence is California is thinking about putting a, a huge price on bullets, that's right. They want to make bullets more expensive. They think that that's going to be a, a an effective, uh, you know, an effective way. And, and oh, by the way, and limit ammunition. So they're going to make it harder because, you know, if you can only get 100 rounds of ammunition, uh, then you're not going to be able to kill, what, 10 people? I mean, I, how many mass shootings do they really think are going to be stopped because of this? And given how much ammunition is already in circulation, how much stockpiling of it has already occurred, this is an idiotic idea. Uh, I would note that the, the only time that they say this is useful is that in some states, ammunition purchases are not regulated as tightly as firearms purchases. And so prohibited possessors are able to get ammunition. Then they go over the list. They end up arresting them. But what I note is that well, the only reason that they're able to make those arrests is, is that they're effectively doing a sting operation. And it would be like if they were selling guns to people and, and seeing who buys one and selling guns to people uh, without doing any background check and then see who buys a gun without a background check that shouldn't have one. Well, in that process, you're also putting a lot of guns out on the street. So it's, it seems somewhat counterintuitive to you as well. We're going to sell ammunition to everybody. But then if a prohibited possessor comes up on our list, uh, we, we're able to arrest them. So maybe this is a good law enforcement tactic or a good gun control tactic. To that, I say, you know how easy it is for somebody to transfer their ammunition to somebody else? I mean, no, nobody, nobody's going to know the difference with that. So you know, anybody who understands what the rules are will just get around them by making sure somebody who's not a prohibited possessor, meaning a felon or somebody, or somebody who's been uh, convicted of domestic violence gets their hands on this stuff. So I, I, I just, the, the, the notion that you're going to limit bullets or make them really, really expensive. I think actually Patrick Moynihan, the senator from uh, New Jersey a long time ago, wanted to, wanted to make a hollow point, $10,000 or something, something really. Moynihan had some things he was smart on. This, this was not one of them. But I would note that with guns in general, you have a lot of people that say uh, very, very stupid things. People that are otherwise quite intelligent are, are really buffoonish on the issue of gun control. And it's because for them, it's, as I've told you, it's a cultural signifier. It's much more about that than it is about actually preventing violence or stopping violence from occurring using firearms. All right, team, I hope you enjoyed the new format of the podcast out early. Uh, please do subscribe on iTunes, uh, share it around, and let me know what you think of the new format on facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Remember, shields high.